This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Kay from Unleashed, and I am so excited today to have as my guest Steve Applebaum, the founder and the president from Animal Behavior College in Santa Clarita, California. Hi, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be here, and I have to praise you. are one of the few people that actually pronounces my name correctly. <laughs> well, it's, it's a New York name. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Everybody says Apple Bomb, but it is Apple Bomb. So yes, yes. Well, you know, us New Yorkers, we know how to pronounce right. things. So <laughs> um, I just want to talk to my viewers. This is really a very special opportunity, and I hope they hear the warning bells and uh, the listening bells clearly, because we are entering a new normal, and sadly for many. The careers we once had, the jobs we once had, either will be curtailed or they will be non-existent. So this really is a fantastic opportunity for many people, especially if they have passion with animals and if they've been quarantining with their pets, they've been looking at them and staring at them and back and forth. And they might have come up with an idea even on their own that how can I take my love of an animal fostering, rescuing, and turn it into something, you know, especially if you can't afford to pay a groomer because they are quite expensive. I have two cats and it's not cheap if you want to have them groomed and you don't want to fight with them in the bathtub to learn, you know, maybe the proper way to maybe even groom. So I'll let you have the floor now and you could tell us a little about yourself, the school, the ins and the outs, and then we'll just go over different things. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I I was a professional dog trainer for, oh gosh, 15 years. And uh, I started off training mostly private lessons. Uh, I got out of, uh, when I got out of the Air Force, I had no idea what I wanted to do as an adult. I had had a half-formed idea of going into law enforcement, but I realized that was not going to be my path. And so I had all this dog experience and decided that what I would do is train, because that I knew, until I figured out what to do for a living. And I found to my surprise and delight that it was absolutely possible to make a living as a dog trainer. And it was, it was great. I mean, I had the ability to tangibly make a difference in people's lives and the lives of their pets. And so I, I kept doing it. I started my business, gosh, I mean, in the, uh, in the early 80s. And uh, within three or four years, I had all the business I could handle and was hiring trainers. And I realized at that time that the pet industry would likely undergo the same kind of change that another industry was undergoing in those days, and that was video rentals. So video rentals, if you recall, started off as these little mom and pop stores where you could actually rent a movie and take it home and watch it. It was very high tech. And right. after you know five, six, seven years of this, you started to see larger corporate players coming in and Black taking Western. over like Blockbuster, okay? And I realized that that would likely happen in the pet business, but that the only way it could happen would be if there was some sort of a pet supermarket, a kind of one-stop shopping concept, and that might include services. And it was really just an idea that I had until I 
saw a big chain open near us, near me. And uh, I connected with them and realized that my vision was correct, that they were very interested in offering obedience classes as part of their services. One thing led to another. And as a result of my connection with this chain, it transformed my company from a, you know, a small LA-based company of six or seven people into something that was offering obedience classes throughout the entire state of California and then ultimately nationally. So that by 1993 or 94, we had training in 25 states and would ultimately grow that to about 45 states with about 550 trainers. The problem that I had was it was very difficult to find dog trainers. I mean, especially in all these locations. And we also discovered as in our search, there was no standard for trainers. There was no universally agreed upon standard. Many of the people that were applying to work for us, and we had a prerequisite, they had at least two years experience, couldn't pass our exam. And so we realized that what we had to do was to grow our own, to teach our own trainers. The, right. the, the challenge the there, train the trainers. Okay. But the problem was, is that the two educational models that I was aware of, distance learning, which was not new. I mean, the internet has put a new wrinkle on that, but correspondence programs are as old as the mail or the traditional brick and mortar classroom. Neither model was going to work for what we wanted to do. I didn't have the capital to set up 15 schools all over the country. So brick and mortar was out. And I didn't like the correspondence model because I realized that in order to train dog trainers, there had to be a hands-on component to this. It wasn't just going to be read this material or watch these videos. And so the two models that I knew weren't going to work. So we came up with a third, which was to, in those days, have our students go to the locations where we were offering classes, because we had this all over the country, for the hands-on portion. And we created an academic portion so that they understood the principles of behavior and how to apply it and learn about breeds and, and, and all of the critical things that they were going to need to know in order to become dog trainers. And it was such a simple concept that at first I thought it wasn't going to work, but it did. It worked fabulously well. And that's how the school Animal Behavior College was born. And we really just took off from there. I mean, that started in 1998. I think we had 70 students our first year and uh, had double-digit growth for the next 12 years. We found that there were a, a lot of people that wanted to do this, that had a passion for working with animals. The dog trainer program was our first. Since then, we launched uh, in 2008. We set up a veterinary assistant program, which has become our most popular course. We just started a grooming program in 2010, uh, cat training in 2016, and aquatic management in 2019. And all of these are, you know, you can't take away these kind of skills because even no. even a fish tank, you know, restaurants have fish tanks. People have, you know, fish tanks. Big offices have them for the look, for the calmness. And, That's right. You know, it's a science to it if you don't want to kill yeah, the, fish. Yeah. The, actually, the aquatics maintenance program is hard. There's a lot of science to that. Uh, we were just talking about that. Uh, I was talking with uh, one of my program managers for that program yesterday. And uh, that it is, it is a complicated program. But you hit it on the head. The needs that existed before COVID will exist after. Society will change a bit. Everybody realizes that. But there's still 80, almost 90 million dogs kept as pets in the United States alone. Okay. Uh, roughly the same number of cats. 
the people that have these animals, their needs don't change. In fact, with many people sheltering at home, eventually when they go back to work, there will be environmental changes as a result of going back into the workforce. And that can cause a lot of stress for dogs. So I believe that they're going to be increased behavioral challenges with their pets when people go back to work. Oh, but even if, they, so. even if there aren't. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean it, seems, it seems logical that there would be. But even if there aren't, even if the need remains relatively consistent, the need is still there. It may be a while before dog trainers start offering group classes or people feel comfortable enough to attend them. But eventually that will come back. And in the interim, dog trainers have the option of working with clients privately. You can also work with clients via video chat. Uh, veterinary hospitals have been an essential service throughout this. There too, uh, certainly in California, we know that if you want to take your dog or cat to the hospital, you're not necessarily going to be able to sit in the waiting room with other people. They no, do they curbside drop-off. Yeah. Sure. But there's still the need for these hospitals, which means that there's a need for people to work in the hospital. So veterinary assistants are definitely in demand. And grooming, I mean, look, <laughs> I looked in the mirror today. I haven't had a haircut <laughs> in a month I'm and a half. My own. I'm starting to I'm cutting the colors on my own. I don't care. We don't my my wife has offered to do that. <laughs> I may have to take her up on it. Because we're all going to be wearing it. <laughs> it's true. Well, the same way that my hair hasn't been cut, there are a lot of dogs that haven't been groomed. Okay. And this isn't just an aesthetic thing. I mean, it's a health thing, especially as we get into the warmer months and we start to get into flea season, you know, longer coated dogs that really need to have their coats thinned out a bit so that they're a little bit more comfortable in the heat. This may not seem like an essential service, like getting medical attention, but it is important as uh, any animal lover will attest. And so grooming, which, uh, which, which has been a growing field since the early 1960s, will continue to be in demand. So these are all programs. All the programs we offer are relevant for this changing world. And that's true with cat behavior too, which we've been on the sort of cutting edge of the curve there. More and more people realize that cats are trainable. They're trained differently than dogs, but they're certainly trainable. And uh, we're working on getting enough cat trainers out there to work with them. And the same thing with aquatic management. Aquatic management, yes, right now, you know, with hotels either being shut down or, or having their operations significantly curtailed, the demand isn't as great. But does anybody believe that there will no longer be hotels in a post-COVID world? That's not going to happen. So hotels, restaurants, people that have, uh, yeah, especially the higher end tanks that were, they're willing to spend to have somebody come out and work with them on setup and on maintenance. It's an absolutely growing industry, and uh, we're very positive about its continuation. So those are our programs now. We're also going to be launching a zookeeper assistant program probably this third quarter of this year, and we're really excited about that. That's been off the charts as far as um, interest from, uh, from people that connect with us. I was mentioning about trainers working in their specific communities. And, you know, I did a, a human interest story with Estella and, you know, her passion was big, big animals and, and, uh, and zoo animals. Right. And, and, you know, to become an assistant, you know, years ago, I had a friend who was a veterinarian and he was a mobile vet and that was going back mm -hmm. a zillion million years ago. And I went up to visit him upstate New York. He, you know, animals know a vet like a mile away. 
doesn't matter where they mm-hmm. are, they smell you. They and do. I brought my animals up to get, you know, their annual shots and give, you know, he, he liked to do that. He wanted to teach me to assist. Foolish, foolish me, because by <laughs> now I would be working at the zoo because I'm really into big animals, you know, the elephants and, and the giraffes and, you know, the cows and stuff like that. So this is my little bit for helping the animals, even though just talking, but I'm very big into rescue and um, adoption. And right now, a lot of people, um, a lot of um, the shelters have emptied out and people have gotten so lonely, they don't even like their own company, maybe, that they've... uh, (laughs) They've done phyto quarantine, <laughs> yes, which which is great yeah. for the animals, of course. It is. Well, there's silver linings amidst craziness. And certainly, one of the silver linings is that there uh, a lot of the shelters have emptied out, which is which is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, big animal, uh, uh, especially a large animal veterinary, is ex- physically just extremely demanding. I've I've done some ride alongs with that over the years, and uh, it's it's. It's pretty astonishing, yeah. but it's a wonderful, I mean, look, people help animals in a lot of different ways. I mean, you're, you're in a situation where with the microphone you have, with your voice, you can influence people. You can get them thinking about things that maybe they didn't think about before. And that's extremely powerful. So yeah. I think everybody like, in their own like way can- blood. Can you know, animals could give blood, <laughs> which is a great yeah, thing. How many people know that? That's a lot of vets are now starting to uh, do that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't know that. And that's the point, which is by, by getting information out there, we're all interconnected. I know that's cliche, but it's true. You know, information gets spread. God knows that sometimes there's false information that gets spread. So it's nice when, when positive, helpful information for people, especially when times are tough, is put out there. I mean, because I think people, even though oftentimes we're drawn to look at the train wrecks, people also have a hunger for being able to help and to make a positive difference in other oh, people's yeah. lives and in pets' lives. And I think that's why the industry that we're both in touches people so deeply. It's because you can make a difference. You can make a tangible difference. There's so much we can't control. This is something that we can actually make tangible difference. Well, when and, you're and a that, giver, that you can control that. And giving makes you feel better. What is the new phrase? Some people are so poor, all they have is money. Right. Which is pretty <laughs> profound true. because, you know, kindness, you know, all of these ways that we're showing these first liners, you know, in the hospitals, right. how we appreciate. I mean, it's fabulous. And it's a, a fabulous career. I mean, being a nurse or a doctor, they've always been, and I'm sure they're going to boost up in popularity if people, you know, have the gumption in the guts. But uh, all of these things that you're offering are basically essential. And they help with our daily lives. You know, nobody wants an unruly pet. And I've met a few. The pet's so happy to see you, he has to jump on you. Well, that's not cool. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. And, and see, one of the things that people uh, don't always realize, and I used to get this when I was a trainer, you know, the people would ask, people would ask you what you do sometimes and, and you tell them and, you know, and I tell them, well, I, I train dogs. They look at me funny, like, oh, okay, but what do you do for a living? Can you make a living doing that? I mean, is that like a hobby? And for some people it is a hobby, but people don't understand the size of the pet industry. You know, I'll tell them that it's, you know, $80 billion. And that's just, a, it's a number with a lot of zeros. I mean, for a lot of people that doesn't, there's no context. But if you tell them something like, well, it's, it's significantly larger than the toy industry, they look at you like, what? It is? 
you know, <laughs> and the products the point, are pretty substantial too. Yes, I mean, the products are very substantial. We used to walk our dogs on the on the concrete. Who had booties for them? I mean, and the clothes. <laughs> oh, you could make it's, a case that some people go overboard. Oh, 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 oh. Every, yeah, the different, different strokes. Have, it's called a carriage <laughs> with wheels. Really. Yes. <laughs> yes, but beyond beyond perhaps the, the the frivolous is the fact that it is absolutely possible to make a living as a dog trainer, as a groomer. Certainly, you can make a living uh, working as a member of a veterinary team. Cat trainers can make a living. There just needs to be more of them. And a lot of the people that are taking our cat training program also train dogs, not all, but a chunk, so they can offer it as an additional service or a standalone service. And aquatics management has always been a viable field. There are thousands of people across the country that make their living maintaining tanks and teaching others how to do the same. It doesn't always come up on everybody's list of things that they think of when they think of viable professions that they can make a living in, but, but you can. You absolutely can. And there is no reason to believe that that will be any different when we're post-COVID. Oh, yeah. No, I even think that this will definitely be there. But the best part is these are online courses. And for the people even post-virus who don't want to be in the public domain, a lot of these are solitary. You go to somebody's house, you work with the homeowner, or you work by yourself, you know, or you just work in a small veterinary office. For the people who lives will change for whatever their circumstances sure. are, whether they have underlying conditions and they don't want to be in a crowd. I mean, I'm not slipping into a, a booth anytime soon to, or a movie for sure. Right. But I did want to ask you, because in the military, there's a lot of training and also with the police, there's a lot of training. Do you see as some of your students, military, retired military getting involved? We see some. The biggest program we we have that's connected to the military is one that's actually for military spouses. We work with a program called the My Career Advancement Account Scholarship, which we call just MYCAA. Basically, that's a program through the Department of Defense in which a grant for $4,000 will be given to a military spouse, typically ranks E1 through E4. So it's it's enlisted ranks. It's not for officers. So what we're talking about here are young people, young families, military spouses. We've known for decades that the level of unemployment amongst military spouses is typically two or three times higher yeah. than that of the general population. And part of that is because they move around. It's very difficult if you, you get a change of base, a change of station, you have to go out and get another job. It's tough. So we're involved in this program. We've had over 6,300 students take our course through this program. Um, and the beauty of that is because our courses are portable. You know, if you're stationed in Maine, okay, and, and then you get transferred to San Diego, <laughs> you wish, you can take what you would, were doing in Maine and you can apply it in San Diego. There are dogs in Maine. There are dogs in San Diego. There are veterinary hospitals in all these places. There are grooming salons. So you can take your skills and you can apply them everywhere, anywhere in the country. So we certainly do that with the military. Uh, we also have another program that's our classroom program. Uh, you mentioned that our courses are, are primarily online, and that is true. But we do have two classroom programs that run a year. 
The next one's scheduled to start in September. We'll see if that goes or not. If not, we'll simply run it next year. But this program takes our dog trainer course, which typically takes between 12 to 18 months to complete. So it's a, it's a substantial program and it condenses it into about five and a half months. So the students are in the classroom five days a week, eight hours a day. Um, and it, they're small classes, so it's a, it's a big room, and yet we can actually do social distancing in the classroom. We typically have five, six, eight students there, and uh, they're all veterans transitioning back into civilian life. That's a wonderful program. Um, as far as retirees go, we get about 5% of our student body, maybe 5.5%, that is over 55 and has reached a point where either they're uh, financially, we used to get these stories, we still do, you know, the anesthesiologist that wants to do this, or the very successful attorney or architect. And when we first heard this, we were like, really? So you want to give up medicine to train dogs? Okay, they give why? Up stress. That's right. They want to give up stress. They're in a position where, yeah, I mean, for them, it's going to be a pay cut, but it doesn't matter because it's really not about the money. It's really about doing something that they love and giving up the stress. So we get some of that. And we also get people that are simply looking for a second career. And they're not necessarily going to be making more money. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But regardless, they're going to be doing something that they've always wanted to do and are finally getting around to doing it. We hear that all the time. You know, I've been wanting to do this my whole life and I'm finally going to do it. You know, we love that. Well, let's go to a commercial and then I have some other questions for you. We'll be right back. So now I've got this pack of four Sharpe rescue dogs, Jimmy, Coco, another Sharpe, one pug, who is Joe. I have stuck with the Dynavite for, oh my goodness, probably five, six years. People remark on really how well my dogs look what beautiful coats they've got. I tell them, yep, they get a regular diet of Dynavite with every meal. Dynavite is nutrition. All I have to do is say dog food. It's a pandemonium. They can be half asleep, and they're up and thrilled. She just looks that whole squeaky clean. You don't need to wait until a problem presents itself. It's far better to keep the dog happy and healthy at all times. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. People do ask how they get Dynavite. I tell them I get my Dynavite from D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, we're back and we're talking to Steve Applebaum from Animal Behavior College. And he's telling us all the wonderful things that we could do for our second act if we choose. I met a real sheepdog yesterday. A, a real sheepdog? A real sheepdog from Mississippi. His human is here building, help building a hospital. I had seen him around the day or two before, but I was wearing a mask and he looked at me kind of funny. Even my cats look at me funny with the mask. But <laughs> I got to really spend a few minutes with him. This dog was amazing. You know, one of those black and white, like, shelky yeah. dogs. 
that, you know, the owner says, sit down and he just stares at the owner, doesn't make a move until the owner says, just amazing. I mean, there just are some wonderful animals out there. And of course, breed is important, don't you think? As far as we all can't have a lassie, although I had a tricolor lassie, but different breeds are certainly easier to train, you know, whether they're high strung or energetic? Um, Yes, yes, absolutely. Breed considerations have to be looked at. So do environments. I'll never forget a case I I worked on years ago in LA. It was in the uh, Wilshire district. So this is one of the few areas in Los Angeles where you have these gigantic high-rise buildings, uh, similar to what you'd see in Manhattan. And I get a call and I go out there and I'm talking to this really nice man. He's an investment banker. He doesn't have a whole lot of time and he's got this magnificent penthouse apartment that his two huskies are causing incredible amounts of damage to. And I'm talking, I don't even know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage they chewed on his rugs and his furniture. And he's, he's really perplexed. And I remember him looking at me and saying, and I don't understand. I had these dogs as a kid, not these specific dogs, but this breed. And they were always great. And I I'd caught a little bit of an accent in his voice. I recognized the East Coast accent. And so I asked him, I said, you know, where are you from? You're not from, you're not from around here, are you? And he said, no, I'm originally from, I think it was Vermont. Okay. And I said, well, in Vermont, I mean, were you living in a place like this or <laughs> where, where were you living? And he said, no, actually, you know, we were on two acres. <laughs> and oh, as I no said, he said that, you know, I saw the light go on. It was like, I just didn't realize. I mean, it seems so obvious, but when you're in it, it doesn't, it, you don't always, you don't always recognize that. So environmental factors are a huge thing. You know, if you've got a breed that has been bred for very high energetic work, including sheepdogs, you know, do you really want to have dogs like that in a small apartment? You know, and the answer is probably not. Uh, it depends. I mean, it, I wouldn't say no across the board. If you have the kind of time, maybe you're retired or you've got the kind of time where you're going to be able to take these dogs out every single day for an hour or so, and you're going to be able to get them out on the weekends doing things. It's not unworkable, but generally, environment has to be considered, breed has to be considered, the amount of time you're going to be able to spend, which goes back to the environment. There are a lot of considerations, which is where dog trainers come in. I wish more people would contact trainers before they get dogs, okay? Because if they would invest a little bit of time on understanding what breeds were actually designed to do, as well as giving a realistic assessment of of their lifestyle and environments, some people would save themselves a whole lot of trouble. I think so, because you're right. I mean, I will be getting a dog again at some point, but I always look, you know, up at the characteristics because of where I live and my age now. I mean, I'm not looking to lift an 80 pound dog. I love big dogs, but there's some other little, you know, it's all in the eyes for me. I mean, you know, on Facebook, I'm prolific. I have my Unleash page. I'm posting constantly trying to nudge people, urge people to adopt. I mean, people have two cars. They have multiple devices, televisions in every room, and one dog. Give me a break. (laughs) I mean, you know, and the dogs need companions. That's the thing. They they do. And I have this Heroes page, which I'm going to get all the information from you, what you were saying about the military spouses. And I will put it on that because that is key because, you know, even when the other, the spouse is deployed and the wife has nothing to do and is sitting at home, 
it's frustrating too. A lot of them I know want to try to start. I've read articles that they try to start their own business and they get the support from their community. And like you just mentioned, then they go to a different base and they lose that support. So if they could do something on their own, which would be great, that would be wonderful. And I'd like to ask two pet questions. May I? Of course. Okay. The first question is a fabulous, fabulous dog who's a shelter dog that goes on these Fido retreats for weeks sometimes Mm -hmm. is a wonderful animal, except when he sees other people and other animals outside. Is it because he wants to protect who's ever taking him for the weekend? Or is he just... Um, what does he do? I mean, when, when you... Is he aggressive? Barks, does he bark? Barks. Yeah, barks. You know, he's aggressive, but I don't think he'd rip you apart. He's like uh, kind of a mutt, but... And it's a she. But my friend who, who does this, she says, don't look her in the eye. Come in the house. Sit down. She will bring you the ball. And they don't look the dog in the eye. They do sit down. And the dog does bring the ball. But it's anything outside of the house, other animals, people. It's weird, right? And this is, um, yeah, I mean, this is, well, I don't know about weird. I mean, it's, it's not as uncommon as you might think. This, the dog, I assume, is on a leash when she's outside. Um, yes, yes. Has she had an opportunity to, to greet people outside? I mean, sometimes when, when dogs are on a leash, you get a kind of barrier frustration where because the dog is being restrained, that makes the dog frustrated and that can be part of the reason why the dog gets aggressive, which of course, since now the dog is barking like a lunatic, you're not going to want to let the dog go near the person. So it becomes a sort of, you know, circular kind of a thing. Has she had the opportunity to actually greet anybody? I mean, is this a bluff or do you think she'd actually bite somebody if she got close? Well, I don't know. I mean, you never know. She's a beautiful, sweet dog. It's just other people, not with her and not with whoever takes them for the weekend, just with her. But I will ask her that and see if that happens. That type of, of behavior. Muzzles, you know, one um, of those, uh, not, the, not the crazy muzzle, but right. there's a muzzle that they could, they could drink, but it would, you know, to sure. see if, you know, if you could get them to at least go up and sniff you and get a pet, you know, I mean, you know, no some, animal wants to be like that. Some behaviors require a fairly extensive sit down with a trainer to get all of the relevant facts before you can make a reasonable diagnosis for just briefly for aggression, aggression being defined as barking, growling, snapping, snarling, lunging at people. Um, When you're dealing with that, aggression can be caused by fear. It can be a territorial thing. It's often learned. Sometimes there are genetic components, just there can be pain elicited aggression. There are all different reasons why dogs act that way. And the key to doing it right is to be able to sit down with an owner or a pet parent, if you will, and be able to get as much of a history as you can so that you can really make an educated recommendation because you don't have a lot of leeway for error there. You want to get it right. So my advice on that one is if this is a real concern, it sounds like it is, you know, have her contact me, have her contact a trainer you know, who specializes in this and, uh, okay. and really, really work that one out. You know, some behaviors are much simpler. You know, I can give you a, I won't unless you ask a, a, you know, a two minute dissertation on how to deal with most problem chewing issues, you know, cause they're relatively straightforward, but aggression, there's a lot of, of components. And to your point about a muzzle, the key to understanding that is, is that 
as weird as it might sound, the barking or the growling or the whatever she's doing may be symptomatic of an underlying problem. That's the cliche sounding part that's true though. And so muzzling the dog might, depending on, you know, the circumstance might make it safer for her to be around people, but you're not necessarily dealing with what's causing the aggression in the first place. Okay. Uh, okay. So that, that's that, really the key. Yeah. I just thought if it became a positive after with the muzzle, it would be that. But and my second question is an older cat who's always followed the rules decides out of the clear blue, I don't want to go in the litter box for number two. And mm. there's nothing wrong with the cat. Yeah, when you say there's nothing wrong with the cat, you've had her, you've had her, yeah, him, her yeah. check. I mean, no, but is it that he wants his own litter box? Okay. So litter box issues with cats, there are a couple of things you need to rule out. First, you need to rule out any medical, medical problems. If the cat has been to a veterinarian recently and uh, has a clean bill of health, and you've specifically told the veterinarian that this is a problem, because sometimes they'll do a, a physical, but they're not actually... I've seen that with dogs too, where you'll take them to the vet and they don't check to see if there's a urinary tract infection or whatever. So it gets missed. Normally that doesn't happen, but assuming that the cat has a clean bill of health, litter box issues are usually caused by some sort of environmental change. People or the box isn't being as kept as clean as it used to be. So has the litter been switched? Some people change brands. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. And so the litter hasn't been switched. But there was an environmental change, definitely. Right. Okay. It, so if there's an environmental change, whether it's another cat, whether it's additional people in the house, if you've got mold. another cat, mold. What is mold? mold? Yeah, that's being repaired. Okay. So that's probably okay. it. So that. So that. I mean, that certainly. That certainly could be it. Has the litter box been moved? Yeah, to a hotel. <laughs> right. Okay. So. So now, so so and now it becomes a little bit clearer. Right. So a lot of times when you're dealing with environmental changes, what you sometimes have to do is you have to go back to the basics. So if the litter box is now in a completely different environment, perhaps what the owner should be doing is taking the cat to the litter box as often as they possibly can. And certainly if they see the cat in the litter box, whether it's number one or number two, they should be praising. And if there are any kind of super special treats that kitty loves, Anything you can do to positively reinforce the appropriate behavior will strengthen that behavior. You might even consider getting a second litter box. Yeah. Um, okay. Taking all this under I mean, advisement, I'm going to be very popular at dinner parties now. <laughs> yeah. Well, but again, but that actually sort of makes my point that I was making earlier about the aggression, which is a lot of training has to do with getting a sense of what's changed or what's going on in the environment. Okay. And once, once you can identify those factors, then you can make a reasonable diagnosis. It's just with aggression, it's a little bit more complicated because again, you don't have quite the same leeway for error. Right, right. You know, we could try two or three things with the litter box. And if the first two don't work, we can try the third and it's annoying, right, but, aggression, but it's not dangerous. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So. Well, I'm going to mention that to my friends and, uh, my parting words, I'm thrilled that you were able to come on. Let's do this again. I appreciate Absolutely. all of the information and I will get information on uh, for the military spouses for sure and post that on my, uh, my heroes page. And um, I want to thank you. It was, uh, it was great. You're it was good my host. pleasure. I, you were a good thank guest you. I for enjoyed. me. I really appreciate and it. You're, you're a great host. So I wish you no a great day. No one has dead. ever accused me of having voices that doesn't carry. <laughs> me neither. 
Me neither. <laughs> New York thing. Sometimes I, I, sometimes I even have to spell words so they understand what I mean. But, you know, I want to say goodbye to all of my listeners. I want to thank Mark. And I want to tell everybody to remember to live life unleashed, keep safe, and be well. Thank you, everybody. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.